Hey, I'm Kevin O'Connor. I'm Chris Vernon. And we're the Mismatch. And we have a huge announcement today. This is about to be our fifth NBA season together, but this year is going to be a little bit different. Way different. First of all, Spotify gave us millions and millions of dollars. Wait, they paid you a million dollars, Well, they they are giving us our own podcast feed. If you want to keep on listening to The Mismatch with me and Kevin, follow The Mismatch on Spotify or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Let's enjoy another amazing season of the NBA together. Thank you, everybody. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. All right, we're doing this slightly differently for the Rick Barry Book of Basketball podcast. I'm going to read what I wrote about him in my book in 2009. Um, He was somebody that I was completely fascinated by when I was doing my three years of research for everything. And the stuff I wrote about him in my book was probably, I would say, 10% too harsh. And if I could do it over again, I would have swung the seesaw a little bit um, and concentrated slightly more on, uh, on how talented he was and a little less on the perfectionist stuff and uh, all the flaws with his personality, which we'll get to in a second. I'm going to read what I wrote in 2009, and then we're going to talk to Malcolm Gladwell about it. And we're going to talk to Tony Kornheiser about it. So that is the plan. This is what I wrote in 2009, the book of basketball, Rick Barry. The Book of Basketball, Rick Barry. We already nailed an inordinate number of Barryisms throughout the book. His various hairstyles, his controversial leap to the ABA, his announcing foibles, his autobiography with the worst cover ever, the year they robbed him of the MVP and the reasons why. Say what you want about the guy, but he is definitely interesting, especially if you're his hairstylist. We will remember him as the most notorious asshole in NBA history, a perfectionist who held inferior teammates in disdain, had an almost pathological need to rub everyone the wrong way, 
and earned a reputation, fair or unfair, for not being able to click with black teammates. Remember when Jeff Beebe flips out during the near plane crash and Almost Famous, berates Russell Hammond and finally screams, you act like you're above us, you always have, as their bassist chimes in, finally the truth. Yeah, that was Rick Barry. He acted like he was above everyone else. Five former teammates or co-workers threw him under the bus in the same 1983 SI feature written by Tony Kornheiser. Here's what they said. Robert Parrish, quote, he had a bad attitude. He was always looking down at you, end quote. Phil Smith, quote, he was the same on TV. He was so critical of everyone, like he was Mr. Perfect, end quote. Mike Dunleavy, quote, he lacks diplomacy. If they sent him to the UN, he'd end up starting World War III. End quote. Billy Paltz, quote, around the league, they thought of him as the most arrogant guy ever. I couldn't believe it. Half the players disliked Rick. The other half hated him. End quote. And then there was Warriors executive vice president, Ken Macker, who said, quote, you'll never find a bunch of players sitting around talking about the good old days with Rick. His teammates and his opponents generally and thoroughly detested him. End quote. Poor Rick Barry was the Daniel LaRusso of the NBA. There was just something about him that rubbed people the wrong way. The quintessential story, when he threw away game seven of the 76 Western Finals because his teammates never defended him in the Ricky Sobers fight. A fight erupted between Rick Barry of the Warriors and Ricky Sobers of the Phoenix Suns. Barry and Sobers will both stay in the game. Barry probably watched the highlights at halftime and confirmed his own suspicions that his teammates sold him out the second half started, Barry simply stopped shooting. Barry didn't score a point in the third quarter. He looks a little bit tired. During the last few minutes, Coach Al Adels probably threatened him because Barry suddenly became Barry again. Even with a late surge, the defending champs ended up falling at home to an inferior team. You won't find a more indefensible playoff defeat in a deciding game. So when I was working for Jimmy Kimmel's show, we used Barry for a comedy bit. I couldn't resist asking him what happened in that game. He quickly replied, quote, we should have won game seven. We were rallying and I had a pick and roll with Clifford Ray, but he couldn't catch the damn pass, end quote. Then he shook his head in disgust. He let out one of those, I wish Cliff were here right now so I could shoot him a nasty look groans. 27 years later, Rick Barry, Hall of Famer, NBA champ, one of the eight best forwards of all time. He couldn't let that play go. It was weird. Sure enough, I watched the tape a few weeks later. The Warriors were roaring back. Ray set a pick and rolled to the basket. Barry delivered the ball right off Ray's hands and out of bounds. Barry around the top. He loses the ball. Golden State throws the ball away again. The cameras caught Barry frozen in disbelief. It's the defining Barry moment in the defining Rick Barry was a prick game. Can you hold it for a second, Rick? Rick, how about it? Uh, decided to play for Oakland. Poor Barry was his own worst enemy. He fled from a perfect situation in 1967. Top scorer on a finals team that had a young Hall of Fame center named Nate Thurman and a quality second scoring option named Jeff Mullins. And he jumped to the ABA's Oakland Oaks. Something that uh, I feel is best for my wife and my family as far as our security is concerned. And, and this is the reason why I've decided to go over. Why? Because his father-in-law had been named their coach even though the movement sitting out an entire season and playing in an inferior league that could have gone belly up at any time. 
Has there ever been a dumber career move by an NBA superstar that didn't involve the words Birmingham Barons? You can't even say he did it for the money. San Francisco matched Oakland's offer. He still left. How could Barry forget to put it in his contract? If the team moves or my father-in-law gets fired, I can opt out immediately. So he sat out a year. He injured his knee the following season. And then he watched in horror as the Oaks moved to Washington and Virginia. And Barry finally forced a trade by insulting Virginians in an SI feature, saying that he didn't want his son to, quote, come home from school saying, hi, y'all, dad. He landed on the Nets, where he dragged them to the 1972 ABA Finals before returning to Golden State. So the best forward of that generation wasted five full years of his prime in a second-rate league because he wanted to play for his father-in-law? What? Two years later, Barry nearly dumped the Warriors again to become CBS's lead color guy, changing his mind at the last minute. And after the 77 season, he pissed on Warriors fans a third time by signing with the Rockets as a free agent killing his relationship with Golden State owner Franklin Muley forever. Coach Al Adels also refused to talk about him after. So just like Roger Clemens at the end, Barry retired belonging to nobody. No farewell tour, no retirement ceremony, nothing. All right, so how could we possibly rank him as a top 30 all-time player? Here is Barry looking to go to the basket. Barry was the second best passing forward ever. Rick Barry. Nice pass to Dudley. A beautiful creator who made everyone better as long as they didn't cross him. That's a sensational pass. He could score with anyone when he was younger. Barry outside. Nice shot. Averaging 35.6 points in his second NBA season, trailing only Wilt, Baylor, and Jordan as the highest average ever. Hard and passed him since. 34.7 points he averaged in the 1967 playoffs. And he was one of those born-before-his-time shooters who thrived with the three-point line. He drained 40 of 97 threes in 31 ABA playoff games, 41.2%. He wasn't a great defensive player, but he was crafty enough that he led the league in steals once. He's one of the best free-throw shooters of all time, if not the best, probably the greatest end-of-the-game cooler ever. and he slapped together one of the single best seasons in basketball history in 1975, doing every single thing that needed to be done and pulling off one of the bigger final upsets ever. And he actually would have been fun to play basketball with, as long as you didn't disappoint him or make a dumb mistake. So had they formed a dream team for the 76 Olympics, Barry would have become the team's alpha dog. Everything would have revolved around his passing and his creating. And I think that counts for something in the big scheme of things. We'll remember him as an inordinately talented player and an inordinately screwed up person. Over everything else, that's why it didn't seem right to make him a level four pyramid guy. I put him in level three. Other than the 75 finals, his defining moment happened two years after Watermelon Gate, which we'll get to in a second, when a freelancer named Tony Kornheiser profiled Barry for one of the most memorable features in SI's history. It was called A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. Kornheiser tried to figure out how such a great player could be forgotten so quickly, cleverly arguing that Barry's biggest problem was, quote, face discrimination, end quote comparing him to the annoying know-it-all actor that Dustin Hoffman played in Tootsie, who rubbed everyone the wrong way. The piece starts like this, quote, Rick Barry has a problem. 
He would like people to regard him with love and affection as they do Jerry West and John Havlicek. They do not. The way I look alienated a lot of people, Barry says. I've seen films of myself and seen the faces I made. I look terrible. End quote. He closes his eyes to the memory and shakes his head. Quote, I acted like a jerk, did a lot of stupid things, opened my big mouth, said a lot of things that upset and hurt people. I was an easy person to hate. And I can understand that. I tell kids there's nothing wrong with playing the way Rick Barry played, but don't act the way Rick Barry acted. I tell my own kids, do as I say, not as I did, end quote. What bothers him isn't that he's not beloved. It bothers me, Barry says, that I'm not even liked, end quote. And he wasn't. But I can't drop him below number 26 in my Hall of Fame pyramid. He brought too much to the table. If Barry's career was relived as a 12-person dinner party with Barry hosting, then the following things would definitely happen. Dinner would start late because one of Barry's chefs quit that afternoon. Everyone would comment on the table looking absolutely fantastic. Two guests would storm out during the appetizers after Barry makes an inappropriate joke about one of their kids. Another couple would leave before dessert because Barry keeps arguing politics with the husband and won't shut up. And there would be multiple awkward interactions with Barry second-guessing one of the waiters, highlighted by at least one accidentally inappropriate joke. And the rest of the guests would ultimately decide to ignore his bullshit and savor the wonderful wine, first-rate filet mignon, and an unbelievable round of souffles and ports. Sure, they would bitch about him the entire way home, but a great meal is a great meal. All right, Malcolm Gladwell is here. He's my friend. He wrote the foreword to my basketball book. He is obsessed with Rick Barry. I couldn't think of anyone that had to be pulled into this more than you, you, the whole Rick Barry thing, you're just fascinated by for a variety of reasons. What's the number one reason? Uh, well, I love Rick Barry for many reasons. Uh, he is the most, uh, perfectly atypical superstar. So I have a long, complicated psychological theory about, about superstars. And he is the, he's the, he is the, like I said, the most perfectly atypical one. He doesn't fit the mold of what we normally think a sports um, superstar is supposed to be. And that's his fundamental problem. He is a round peg, a square peg in a round hole. So does he not fit that mold because he his personality turned people off because of the way he looked, because people didn't appreciate? What was it? It's a, So it's a personality. Do you want to hear the full theory? I'll give you the full theory. Yeah, let's hear okay. it. So there are psychologists divide human personality into five dimensions. Neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and agreeableness. So two of those don't matter for the for this purposes of this. Neuroticism doesn't. You can be a great basketball player and be neurotic. Paul George, high, clearly high in neuroticism, and you can be one who's low in neuroticism. Magic Johnson, right? Magic Johnson's not neurotic. He doesn't go home and worry about what went went on in the basketball court. Um, extroversion, introversion is useful, but not, you can be a star and be introverted. I mean, look at, um, uh, Kawhi, right? Classic introvert. Same with Ray Allen, introvert. Yeah. These guys didn't matter. The crucial personality traits for basketball stars are, uh, openness to experience, and that's basically creativity, conscientiousness, and agreeableness. So, Openness to experience is um, exactly what it sounds like. 
um, how willing you are you to learn, to experiment, to um, to try different things, to kind of express all of the to explore every uh, possible variation. Whenever we look at um, great performers in any field, they are high in openness to experience. They have to be they're creative, right? Every entrepreneur is high in openness to experience. Conscientiousness is exactly what it is. Sounds like do you show up? Do you do the work? You cannot be a basketball superstar unless you are conscientious. And you cannot be an entrepreneur unless you're conscientious. Every entrepreneur and every basketball superstar is some combination of conscientious and open to experience. Now, the third one is the crucial one, though, and that's mm. agreeableness, disagreeableness. And this is the personality dimension that measures your willingness, how much you care about getting on with others. How much do you crave the approval of your peers? How much does being part of a team where you're beloved matter to you? Entrepreneurs are, by definition, successful ones, low in agreeableness. They are disagreeable people. Uh, the whole reason why Elon Musk is able to build what he builds is he doesn't give a shit about what anyone thinks, right? Mm. If he cared about what people think thought, he would never have started Tesla because everyone told him he was crazy, right? Down the line, great entrepreneurs are always disagreeable. That's what allows them to try the thing that everyone else is, thinks is crazy. Basketball superstars, on the other hand, tend to be highly agreeable, right? The thing that makes them work on a team is they desperately care about what their teammates think of them. They do things to win the approval of their... Think about the lengths to which someone like Magic Johnson goes to make sure that he's beloved because he mm -hmm. understands that that translates on the court. You wrote your entire book, The Book of Basketball, about this intangible dimension that separates great teams and great players from others. A lot of that was about agreeableness. The yeah. ability to function in a team environment. So basketball superstars are high in conscientiousness, high in openness to experience, and high in agreeableness, except for Rick Barry. He is one of the only examples, he is the only basketball superstar I can think of who has the personality dimensions of a great entrepreneur. He, he's, he's low in agreeableness. He doesn't care. He would always claim he cared, but the truth is, he pursued greatness on the court com in complete contradiction or in complete being complete while being completely oblivious to the effect it had on team chemistry. Right? It's because he's disagreeable, didn't care about that ultimately. All he cares about is you play basketball the right way. And I, it doesn't matter how he said that, how he expressed that to his teammates. It just wasn't no other basketball superstar would ever be so insanely insensitive and blunt in how he expressed his perfection on the court. So you're saying he almost would have been better off as a tennis player or a golfer. Absolutely. In fact, no, I would even, he would have been much better off as an entrepreneur. He had the <laughs> right. entrepreneur's mindset. He's Elon. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is a perfect example, by the way, of someone who is insanely conscientious, insanely creative, and so disagreeable. The man was one of the Biggest assholes in the valley, but it, he put that assholiness to such fantastically good use, right? By doing, going his own way. That's Rick Barry. Rick Barry, if Rick Barry was, had discovered computer programming instead of basketball in fifth grade, he would be a, he'd be like a billionaire on, in living in some massive house in 
you know, with San Jose. Uh, well, he's also disagreeable about how people discuss him. He, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I was, I think too harsh on him in my book because I read every book there was to read and everybody had the same feedback, which was unbelievable yeah. player. What a prick. And yeah. at, at points it didn't matter. Like with the 75 warriors at other points, it really did matter, but he just seemed by the end of it, um, he, he comes and goes, there's no retirement ceremony for him. Yeah. You know, he's, he just kind of leaves. And meanwhile, he was one of the most influential basketball players of the first 35 years of the league. Yeah. And he just comes and goes and that yeah. part of it. And then reading all the little things that happened with him. And you talk about how he was, you know, he would have been an entrepreneur. He actually makes one of the worst business decisions in the, in history, the history of the league. In the history of the league. Yeah. He, <laughs> I was saying, I was saying to a friend of mine, I was talking to a basketball friend of mine today just to get ready for this to make sure I didn't miss anything. It's the equivalent of Luka Doncic leaving the NBA right now. When Rick Barry goes to the ABA and then can't play because he, the, this whole reserve clause thing needs to be challenged. It would be like if Luka Doncic left mm -hmm. the NBA right now and went to some fledgling league. And then they said, oh, he can't play. And he just sits out a year and then plays for another four years. Only the games aren't really televised. There's no real record of it. He's playing in front of barely any fans. His teammates are inferior. And then he shows back up in the NBA for season eight. And he's like, here I am again. I'm Luka Doncic. And people would have been like, what just happened? How did we lose five years of this guy? That's what happened to Rick Barry. Yeah, yeah. No, it, and it's weird because he says... Uh, his explanation for why he does it, why he chooses to jump to make this crazy, terrible decision to go to the ABA. It's not like he's even making a lot of money. He's probably making less money playing for the ABA than he would in the NBA. Is Well, he's well, you know, I didn't really have anyone. I should have had a lawyer look at the contract. Like, right. it's this kind of insanely kind of naive. And I think it's about his focus, though. This is not the first time this has happened to a professional athlete. But these guys who are so laser focused on their sport, on doing the thing that they're really, really good at, they just assume that the rest of the world on some level is as functional as they are. Like right? he, he assumes that the people around him would be as perfectionistic and as on the ball as he is. And then he discovers, no, actually, the ABA is full of a lot of fly-by-night goofballs yeah. who have no idea how to conduct, build a successful basketball franchise. The coaches are worse. The referees are worse. It's basically his worst nightmare. He's a it's perfectionist. And he's yeah. in this imperfect league. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... it's The other thing that he goes because his father-in-law, Bruce Hale, yeah. who was his college coach, is also his coach in the in the ABA. And if you... Well, he's so, his father-in-law, too. Yes, his father-in-law. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. His father-in-law. Um, in Rick Barry's autobiography, which... I have read called the confessions of a basketball gym. Great, greatest basketball cover of any book. It's It's the it, worst. It, they spent a, two cents on it. <laughs> but in this, he does this thing in a book where he invites people in his life to comment on him. And what's hilarious. So he has Bruce Hale, among others, write a little section where he talks about, um, he talks about Rick and the, if I'm going to read it to you, I don't read two of these to you because they're, they're beautiful. So Rick Hale, the guy who he abandons a surefire career in the NBA to jump to this upstart league because he says he has such a strong bond with his father-in-law, Bruce Hale. Um, 
And this is Bruce Hale talking about Rick Barry in this in Rick Barry's own autobiography. Mm. Um, sometimes his teammates have resented him. We had a little bit of this at Miami, my, Miami. But basically, the guys like him, and he's a very likable lad. If you know him, he has an ego and a showy way about him. But when you get to know him, you like him. It was like Pam's business who she dated. He's talking about his daughter, and I had no objection to her dating Rick. Mother certainly did. Oh, I'm sorry. Mother, no, no. mother certainly never did. She loved Rick from the start. That's his father-in-law for yeah. whom he sacrificed his entire career, giving the most luke, lukewarm, like, it's like on the one hand, on the other hand. Right. Got everybody, if your father-in-law wrote that about you, they, you'd never speak to him again. Yeah, I'd be bummed. Yeah, it'd be like. It's a tough one. Bill, well, uh, especially when you threw away your career to to exactly. be with your father-in-law. Yeah, exactly. But wait, you know what's even better? This one I got to read you. This is his wife. So Bruce Hale's daughter, Pam, yeah. first wife. He had come to the house and was in the pool. He had a crew cut, bad teeth. He says now that it was calculated, a way of being with me without letting on. He was involved with me. But I don't know if I can believe that. He was awful to me. He was always shoving me in the pool and I hated him for it. Oh, I could take it, but there's always someone who goes too far, who does it more than the others, beyond endurance. And for me, that was Rick. This, let me just recap. This is his wife <laughs> <laughs> writing this for public consumption in yeah. Rick's own autobiography. Yeah, a book that's supposed to make us like Rick Barrymore. <laughs> there, there is always someone who does it more than the others, beyond endurance. And for me, that was Rick. Like, it's just... It's crazy. And Rick let that in. He read it. He was like, oh, all right, Pam. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Pam. Well, you know, if he was an actor or a singer. Yeah. And he had this kind of personality, we would just be like, you know, difficult is a handful, but great actor and great but, singer. And basketball doesn't really work that way work. because so much relies on your relationships with other people. With other pe and this is, by the way, I mentioned Steve Jobs. This is exactly the way people talk about Steve Jobs. Exactly. They say, he tortured me. He was a yeller and a screamer. His ego was out of control. But on the other hand, he was maybe the most brilliant entrepreneur I ever met in my life. Or, right. you know, like, it's the same. There's nothing particular to Rick. He's just, like I said, he's in the wrong profession. He's just, that personality does not work in the world that he chose. One other thing you were fascinated by, which you did, I think your third podcast ever, Yes. For uh, revisionist history was about Rick Barry and the underhanded free throw and why other people didn't adopt this. What attracted you to that? Because that was one of the Rick Barry legacies. I remember as a kid, every mm -hmm. one of them went in. The last eight years he was in the NBA when he came back, he shot almost 92%. And he was yeah. just automatic and it was a swish every time. And you would sit there and you go, why doesn't everybody do this? It seems like he solved free throw shooting and yet nobody does it. So I went to see him. I was so fascinated by this question. I went to see him and I spent an afternoon with him and we talked about this and many other things. And it cemented my affection. I do have great, great affection for Rick Barry. And he, to this day, is genuinely puzzled by this because there's almost no, I don't think there's any precedent in modern sports history for a guy who comes up, who, who exemplifies an innovation that solves a major performance problem in the sport mm. and is routinely, not just routinely, 
universally ignored by his peers. So it would be as if uh, Tiger comes into golf, uh, is super fit, you know, works out like a madman and starts bombing these 400-foot drives off the tee. And everyone else in the sport is like, no, actually, we're going to continue to have pot bellies and dink and dunk our way around. Right. Right. And we just ignored it. It's like, okay, yeah, he'll go away. Let's go back to, no, 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 the whole sport. Or, uh, you know, Rafa comes along and uh, starts banging topspin forehands harder than anyone's ever seen. And everyone just said, uh, let's go back to wooden rackets. And no, every other sport, the innovator comes along and everyone follows, except for basketball, where the greatest free throw shooter of all time does so with the underhand and no one follows suit. And part of the reason is that no one likes him. You need to be admired and respected. Yeah. But the other thing is you, you look like a sissy. Yeah. And the only he can he didn't care about looking like a sissy. Why? Because he is disagreeable. The disagreeable personality doesn't give a shit about how his peers view him. Everyone else in basketball is agreeable, so they don't want to look like an idiot in front of their fans and in front of their peers. So they can't do it. I mean, Shaq was super open on this. Shaq has said repeatedly, even if he if shooting underhanded free throws turned him into a you know, 90% free throw shooter, he wouldn't do it because he doesn't want to look like an ass. Right. And that, Wilt tried it, right? Wilt, Wilt, Wilt dabbled Wilt tr- in it and it never took. One, I think one season and it's the greatest statistical season of his life. And then he, he but Shaq is more interesting to me. Let me ask you this question. <clears throat> if Shaq had looked at Rick Barry and said, called him up and said, okay, come teach me how to shoot underhanded. And Rick turned Shaq into a 90% free throw shooter. Where does Shaq go in the pyramid? Shaq would have been probably the most unstoppable player of his entire generation because would there you, would have been no way to defend him, basically. Yeah. Because be, when he was around the rim, you just foul him and take your chances. But now if you're going to do that and it's two points every time, then what do you do? Yeah. So, so he would be, would you say he would be, would he have been a top 10 all-time player? I think Shaq, he already was. I think he, I already have him in the top 12. Oh, you, but you, I think okay. he moves into, he, he, he just would have won multiple titles in a row. I, I don't think there would have been any way to stop them because the, the flaw with Shaq was in the last four minutes. Yeah. Just unless Shaq. he had the Kobe next to him, you know, it, he didn't want to get fouled either. That was the other thing. It kind of, he would change. Wilt had the, a bigger issue with that where Wilt would literally change how he played in yeah. the last four minutes and he would go move further away from the basket and the whole thing. But yeah, I, but I think we, and Rick Barry's fatal flaw was his personality. I mm-hmm. think all the great players had some sort of flaw, right? Birds, birds, fatal flaw was that he was reckless. Mm-hmm. He treated every possession, every game, like it was a game seven. He's diving for loose balls and crashing the score tables. And then his, his prime last eight years, you go through, Everybody down the line, even Michael Jordan, whose fatal flaw was like, he was a little like Rick Barry, right? He was so demanding and just couldn't, couldn't kind of come down to the level of his teammates sometimes. And eventually he kind of figured out how to, but Shaq's fatal flaw was the free throw thing. Yeah. And that was yeah. it. But that so, idea that like, that, so Shaq is staring at immortality and all he has to do is, do, is make this one phone call 
Well, I mean, and Rick get in would, shape. If Sha- if Shaq had gotten in shape and solved the Rick Barry free yeah. throw thing, yeah, he would yeah. have been. Now you're talking one of the top three. But this is one of the points I made about Shaq when I wrote about him. Like he was fine graduating with a three seven. You know, yeah. he didn't he didn't care if he got a four zero. He was like three seven. I had a great time, and that's why he's the twelfth best player instead of the third best player. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Let's go through some of the Rick Barry stuff. The resume for him. He only played 14 years, 10 quality, 12 all-stars. A member of the 25K point club. Um, one of six guys ever to average 35 points a game. And this was wow. a list that seemed like, it, when I wrote my book, it was five. Didn't think anybody else was cracking it. And then James Harden bulldozed his way in there. So now we have six. 1975 finals MVP. He won my MVP for that year, which matters nothing. He finished fourth in the ballot. 67 All-Star MVP. Also won the MVP in the crossover ABA-NBA All-Star game in 1972. Underrated MVP. All-NBA first team five times, second team first time. All-ABA first team four times. So nine times he was one of the five best players in one of his leagues. Season leader, points once, free throw seven times, steals once. Best player in two finals, runners-ups. In those 75 playoffs, he was 28-6-6, and 44% field goal. And his ABA playoff peak was 34 a game, NBA playoff peak around 27-7, and seven, and uh, almost 25 points a game. He is the seventh best free throw shooter of all time, 89.3%. Almost average five assists a game, too. So, And today, what's interesting to me about him is in today's game, he is a massive hands down superstar. I mean, he's, I hadn't realized in, uh, that what an extraordinary, I mean, a very limited sample, the man had a, was, had a great three-point shot. Right. In the he, ABA, he was over 40% in the playoff games. And then in the NBA, I had this in Nerd Corner, might as well do it now. Only the first year they had the three-point line, only two guys attempted 200 threes and he was one of the two. It was his last year in the league. Yeah, but I think- yeah. There's this alternate universe where he comes along 20 years later. The game's a little more wide open. He had the shooting range potentially to move back, and then he's basically unstoppable. But back then, they they weren't thinking that way. Who is his correlate in today's NBA? I don't think it exists, to be honest. I, I think that to find a small forward like that who can pass and shoot. I guess you would say like Luca would be the evolutionary mm -hmm. version of him, right? Because Luca's a forward. Um, he's a pass and shoot guy, but he also plays basketball the way you're supposed to play it. But now, like if you had Rick in these days, he would have to learn how to play more like the Luca type of style, right? Like clear out for me, some movement, but also like I can beat guys off the dribble and give me some space. In his mm -hmm. day, you had the centers clogging the lane and stuff like that. So um, so I, I guess it would it would kind of be weirdly like Luca, yeah. Because Luca Luca's not somebody who's lightning fast. Neither was Rick, but he they were always in control of the pace and could yeah. either shoot or pass at all times. 
Yeah, yeah. I swear it's, that wasn't a compare a white guy to a white guy thing either. <laughs> you know, you know, I <laughs> always love to try to cross over, but I I don't really see anyone other than Luca who was a forward who did the things he did. Um, five things you need to know about Rick Barry. We mentioned one of the greatest free throw shooters ever, one of the best passing forwards ever. If you separate the NBA by 20 year spheres, basically, because it's now 75 weeks. So you're basically like 46 to 66, 66 to 86, 80, mm -hmm. you do it that way. He's clearly um, one of the most important players from that stretch, but also one of the best forwards. And it's, you know, him and him, Bird, Irving Havlicek, they're all in the in the mix during that same era. We don't really have small forwards like that necessarily anymore. So he's like this old school thing. But the other thing is, so I was thinking, I did this in my book about if you pick the 1976 dream team. If you basically, mm -hmm. before we actually had the dream team in 92, if you go backwards, you're just like, oh, who would have been in the dream team each, each four years? So the 76 dream team, would have been Rick Barry, Kareem, Doc, John Havlicek, Tiny Archibald as our starters. And then Cowens, David Thompson, Maravich, Bill Walton, Paul Westfall, Bob McAdoo, and John Lucas would have been the college guy. First of all, that's an awesome team. All those guys were really great. But it speaks like, I think Barry's probably the alpha dog of the 1976 yeah. Olympic team. I was say, does anyone play defense on that team? A right, little Kareem. Um, maybe oh. some have a check. Yeah, it is an offensive. <laughs> you would have a lot of, uh, guys screaming help, but nobody played defense back then. No one right? played back. Yeah. That team's so, scoring 160 points a game. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's, it's sort of unbelievable. Second thing you need to know about Rick Barry, you mentioned, so he jumps leagues after a second year. He becomes the first pro athlete ever to dispute the reserve clause. The reserve clause was in all the professional sports. It was basically like, if your contract ends, your team owns you for another year before you can leave. This is well before free agency. He's the first one to challenge it. He goes to the ABA. They say no go. And he has to spend the year as the Oakland Oaks TV announcer. The third year of his career. He's not even playing as a TV announcer. And really is held in contempt for the next seven, eight years as like this greedy money hungry dude who, you know, cared more about himself than team stuff like that. Now we've had this wave of player empowerment and somehow mm -hmm. Rick Barry still isn't the winner of this. Like Rick Barry literally is the first guy ever to say, I am going to risk my career to challenge this reserve class. And Kurt flood, the baseball player gets the credit for this, but Rick Barry did it first. Why didn't he get credit for this? Is it just because people didn't like him? Yeah. Okay. That's the price you pay. It's the price you pay for being disagreeable. I mean, it ripples into every single part of your life. It's also, you know, he's his own worst enemy, of course, because he doesn't know because he's because he's ultimately so indifferent to how he's seen by others. He doesn't go to any kind of go out of his way to make his own case. Yeah. You know, he is like uh, it's he's sort of effortlessly antagonistic. Just because, which, right. which you are, if that's not on your radar screen. I mean, think about it. Most, this is, you know, when people discuss um, uh, the personality profiles of entrepreneurs, it's that final disagreeable piece that's the difficult one. So there are lots of people who are creative. There's a much smaller, but still sizable group of people who are both creative and conscientious. 
So hardworking and creative. But the, take to take those two characteristics and then also find someone who is disagreeable is really, really, really rare. Mm. Why? Because it's just too difficult to be disagreeable. It doesn't, we're not hardwired to be that way. You, you know, most of us, you and I, everyone we know, we spend enormous amounts of time and attention thinking about the way we're being perceived and thinking about how best to present ourselves to the world. It's impossible for us to imagine what life would be like if we didn't spend all that time and attention. That's Rick Barry. He's not thinking about that. This is not on his radar screen, right? It's like not, he's interested. You know, when I hung out with him that afternoon, it was funny. It's like I had to work to find a way to like him. I, I went in wanting to like him. And because I had all kinds of my my reasons, but he wasn't going to like make it easy for me to like him. Yeah. It wasn't like he was bending to, he was doing his own little weird, like obsessive, right down to, I I drove him into town and he was like, you know, giving me these long detailed instructions about like as if GPS didn't exist in a way that you wouldn't just, I don't know, it's just like every part of him is like, he's just not wired the way the rest are. So yeah, he's not going to get credit for being the guy who takes on the reserve clause because he's not ever going to take any steps to make sure he's credited for being the guy who takes on a reserve clause. Right. Um, Second thing you need to know about Rick Barry, he should have run away with the 1975 MVP. So he's 31 and 6 and 6 that year, led the league in steals and free throws, carries the Warriors to the one seed. They're the underdogs in the finals. They sweep the bullets to win the championship. He's 28, six and six, 50 steals and 70 playoff games, finishes fourth in MVP. Bob McAdoo wins. He averaged 35 a game for Buffalo, lost in round one. Everyone valued centers more back then. But the interesting thing is Barry finishes fourth in the MVP voting because the the players voted. So (laughs) they stick it to him and there could be a variety of reasons for that. It's a joke that he was in the MVP and, and, you know, I, I think it's it's one of the worst MVP calls, period. Had he won the MVP... Who, who finished ahead of him? So McAdoo had, was first. He had 81 first place votes, 547 points overall. Dave Cowens was second. Uh-huh. Elvin Hayes was third. And Barry was fourth. He had 16 first place votes. McAdoo had 81. Cowens had 32. Hayes had 37. So it's basically like, fuck you, Rick Barry. The player's like, yeah, fuck yeah. that. I'm not voting for him. It's a and popularity contest. The crazy thing is, so these are the non-centers who won MVP and finals MVP same year, which is, you're basically saying from start to finish, I was the dominant best player. Non-centers, LeBron, Bird, MJ, Magic, Duncan. And that's it. Now, 1975, there's a lot of good players in the ABA. And I think Mm. Dr. J was probably the best player in the world in 1975, but it's arguable between him and Rick Barry. So maybe if Dr. J is in the NBA, who knows, maybe he wins. So you you have to have that little caveat, but it just speaks to how good Rick Barry was that that's the list. LeBron Bird, MJ, Magic, Duncan, and he should have been on that list. Um, the, The fourth thing you need to know about Rick Barry the underhand free throw thing. So we covered basically all of this. But what's weird is when you look at his basketball reference, he's getting better at it as he gets older, right? So his first eight years, he never tops 90% until he gets to the 73 season. 
And he goes 90%, 90%, 90.4, 92.3, 91.6. Last three years, 92.4, 94.7, wow. 93.5. So in all other aspects of sports, your stats are usually going down or getting worse as you get older. Maybe three-point shooting, it might go up. Just you might be an old guy who's just getting open shots. But he's literally figured out how to master free throws. Mm-hmm. And it speaks mm-hmm. to your point earlier. This is insane that nobody would look at that and go, wait a second, what are we doing there? Fifth thing you need to know. So this is an important one for us to cover. 1976 Western Finals. I made a big deal about this in my book because I was so fascinated by it. They're, they're the heavy favorites to win the title again. Game six in Phoenix are up 3-2. Sun's got to go ahead layup. Rick Barry doesn't get the ball in the last play and is still mad about it. And there's an interview I'm going to play right now where... All these years later, he's still mad he didn't get the ball, so we're playing that now. Game six down here. Uh, we had the game under control, but now we're down. And we run a play. I come off a triple staggered screen. I was wide open. Unfortunately, the ball was passed into the corner. I think it actually went to Jamal. Now with two. Wilson the corner. It's blocked by Hurd. And the Suns win it. The Suns win it. The Suns win the ball game. The ball should have gone to me. I was wide open. Goes to game seven. And in the first few minutes of game seven in Golden State, San Francisco, Ricky Sobers, who was this Suns guy who was basically like a cross between a basketball player and a hockey enforcer, just was in fights all the time back. He didn't get thrown out back then. He got mad at Barry over a pick there. Barry took a swing at him. Then there's a stop. They end up fighting at half court. And, uh, and neither of them get thrown out because it's 1976. But yeah. in that fight, there's three sons in there breaking it up. And you can see just none of the Warriors are coming in to break it up. Oh, you can see in the background, just two of them just casually walking over as Rick Barry's getting pounded <laughs> by Ricky Sobers and multiple sons are in there. The thing that I remember about it, when it started, uh, none of his teammate came over to help him out. <laughs> and, and so I think he got upset that his teammate didn't come to help him. But Ricky, I thought got him out of game seven. He really frustrated him a lot in game seven. That was the great mystery about it. You know, people accused him of quitting. And uh, I don't know whether that's the case. Rick Barry is the one that has to answer that. So my theory was at halftime, Rick Barry watched the tape and realized his teammates hadn't jumped in to save him or somebody told him. This comes out in the second half and he doesn't shoot. And he, Rick Barry is on the record as saying, this isn't true. I didn't do that. But mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, I watched it because it's on YouTube. I watched it when I did my book. I watched it again. They're up six at halftime. Barry doesn't shoot the entire third quarter. And if you watch it, he's getting the ball. He's 20, 22 feet from the basket, not moving. He gets the ball. He's just passing it. He's just not refusing to dribble. He's not cutting. He's not doing anything. He takes one shot in the third quarter, which was a layup that was off an inbounds pass where he made a cut and he had a layup, it got blocked. Um, doesn't shoot again until five minutes left in the fourth quarter. He goes 30 minutes without a basket. At one point there in this stretch, they're coming out of a timeout and the announcers see him and he's just sitting on the thing, like slumped back, super unhappy. Rick Barry has come out of the game now for the Golden State Warriors. No, now he's going to come back in, apparently, just taking the last minute. He looks tired today. He's going to come back in. The other four men were out on the floor, and Barry's the last to join them. So he's, like, sulking. He doesn't score until they're down 
They're down eight, five minutes left. Finally, he drives, misses a shot, misses a layup, makes a jumper. All of a sudden, he starts shooting again. Down 12, he makes a jumper, makes a meaningless layup with 12 seconds left. Basically, basically packed it in. And then mm-hmm. after the game, the Suns say, Gar Heard says, the Golden State captain didn't want to shoot it. Curtis Perry said, Barry never moved for the ball like he does. And Dick Van Arsdale said, Rick seemed disenchanted. I think he was upset they couldn't blow us out. If you watch Rick Barry at any point in those two years, he played a specific way. He was clearly mad and he removed himself from the game and was just there in spirit for a long chunk of that game. They go from heavy favorites to... They now lose. The Suns go to the finals, leading to the triple overtime game against the Celtics. This aging Celtics team, Celtics end up beating them. The Warriors had the best team. And it is just a bizarre, bizarre game. It's one of the weirdest games that any great player has ever had. And I sent you the clip of just him throwing passes for 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Does it, LeBron has a game where he, remember, doesn't, where he, where he stops shooting. But LeBron had that- a couple couple Cleveland games where he seemed out of sorts, but he never checked out. The one, the yeah. modern one that was the equivalent was Kobe in Game Seven, two thousand six against the Suns. They were getting blown out, and he basically didn't shoot for this whole long stretch in the third quarter, and just seemed pissed off, and was just like, mm-hmm. "Fuck you, you guys do it," and then kind of snapped out of it. The Barry thing was um, it's amazing to watch, and again, it's on YouTube. And with the, what's what's particular about this is. That he it's, he picks exactly the wrong moment to have his pouting fit. I mean, he jettisons the entire season, right? But claims that. now he's like that's not true. It didn't happen. To say that I got mad at my team and didn't want it was pouting. I mean, what the hell was that about? And I should have been the blankety blank blank that everybody thought I was and said, hey, what the hell is going on? Give me the damn ball. But I didn't because that's not who I really am. It's really hard to watch that tape and and not think it happened. I mean, he was one of the three best players in the league and he just completely disappears. The other thing was he was such a clutch player. He's one of the rare guys who the, his playoff stats were better than his regular season stats. So in a game seven, he was just like, you're waiting for him to mm-hmm. show up. So, But it, it's not just, you know, we're talking a lot about, about um, uh, how Rick, engaged, Rick Barry engaged in this kind of behavior, his teammates do the same thing. By by declining to come to his aid in that fight, they are engaging in behavior every bit as self-destructive as Rick stopping shooting. They right. know what's they know what's going on here. Their star, the the guy who can win the title for them, gets is getting pounded by somebody else, and they sit there and let it happen. Like you know, you can't just blame Barry here. Right, it's true. This well, is a dynamic that it clearly had been, been you know, and th- you know, it's funny. You sent me all these old Sports Illustrated articles, which I was reading about, and there was one, which was there's one that very early on in his time in the Warriors, talking about how, what marvelous team chemistry they had. Which right, is the strangest thing to read because, of course, it's very clearly, the, very quickly, the case that they had terrible team chemistry. Yeah, it quickly flipped. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 
miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This ties into next category is what's age the best. So the flip side of what happens to him in that game is game four of the 1975 finals. When they win the title, they sweep Washington in Washington. Mm. This is also a crazy game to watch on YouTube because Washington's game plan in this game, they send in this guy named Mike Reardon, who um, is basically, you know, he's, he's a, a backup, like guard forward type physical. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and he just wants to start a fight with Rick Barry. It's almost like hockey. Like he's trying to get Rick Barry the game. So he's knocking him, he's bouncing him around and he's just trying to get his goat and finally knocks him over. And he's like kind of standing over him. Al Adels, the Warriors coach wearing a classic seventies warrior, you know, the disco mm-hmm. outfit, basically back in the days when coaches dressed like, you know, they're headed to studio 54 after former player who was known as the fiercest player of the sixties. He was Wilt's enforcer, like Wilt needed an enforcer. Mm-hmm. Um, just won every fight he was in. He was one of those guys. He gets so mad. He charges the court and fights Mike Reardon. That's a pick for Rick Barry. Barry looking for some shooting room. Reardon is on him. Now, hold on. Adels has come out at Reardon. Coach Al Adels wants Reardon. Unsell's got Adels. He's pushing him back. Adels won on him. Reardon was all over Rick Barry. Adels is furious. Now Bill Bridges has a hold of Unsell. So this is the only, as far as I know, the only coach player actual fist fight we've ever had. They get into a huge thing and Al Adels gets kicked out of the game. And so does mm-hmm. Mike Reardon. And the Warriors win the title and Al Adels, Al Adels is in the locker room because he got kicked out of the game defending his player in a coach player fight. So that was the opposite of this. Yeah. So something goes south between their title year and the next year. Yeah, it seemed like he had Rick Barry had quotes after the the Sun series in 76, basically like we played so stupid. Everyone mm-hmm. was going for their own stuff. It seemed like he was pretty disenchanted with Phil Smith, who was the Golden State guard. Um, so who knows? All right, another what's age the best. Rick had the best assessment of Wilt Chamberlain that I've ever read. Quote. I'll say what most players feel, which is that Wilt is a loser. He is terrible in big games. He knows he's going to lose and be blamed for the loss, so he dreads it. And you can see it in his eyes. And anyone who has ever played with him will agree with me, regardless of whether they would admit it publicly. When it comes down to the closing minutes of a tough game, an important game, he doesn't want the ball. He doesn't want any part of the pressure. It is at these times that greatness is determined and Wilt doesn't have it. There's no way you can compare him to a pro like a Bill Russell or Jerry West. These are clutch competitors. Rick Barry is one of the best players in the world saying this about Will Chamberlain, who's still playing in his basketball book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you imagine, can you imagine yeah. if like, I don't know, Stephen Curry just said that about Kyrie Irving one, one day, he just had a paragraph long quote like that. It was like, here are my thoughts on this guy I play against. Yeah. Um, so that happened. 
And then we mentioned the uh, the book cover of Rick's book, Confessions of a Basketball Gypsy, which you can find online. It is spectacular. It's weird that the book is written. You write those kinds of frank tell-all memoirs when you're gone from the game. Not in 1972 when you're <laughs> in your prime? <laughs> Not in 1972. It's like, who was it? I mean, the, the other question is, the thing that would be different today with him is that I don't think it's impossible that you would get another disagreeable superstar. That happens. It's always going to happen. Today, the disagreeable superstar has someone in their court, in their circle, who coaches them, who tells them when to shut up, who says, right. why don't you wait five years? And there's just none of that back then. There's no supporting cast, right? So what you get, and it's so fascinating about all sports in that era, is what you get is these an unvarnished picture of these guys because they don't know any better. They're just kids. You know, they're all in right. their 20s. Well, now the the version of Rick Barry now would be Kyrie Irving, right? And he's not yeah. he's not as despised by former teammates and rivals like Rick was, but in the same way, like Mercurial doesn't seem to understand the impact of things he does on his team, um, moves around yeah. and stuff like that. But it's still really, I think, well liked by other players for the most part. If someone took a threw a punch at Kyrie, I guess you. It, People don't rush in. People the court would defend him. Yeah, yeah. People they would. They, they would. They would defend him. Is there What's anyone? It? Is there anyone in the NBA now who you think would not be defended by their teammates? Any star? Mm. Not a, not a famous star. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. What's age the worst? Is our next category. So, so Rick had a reputation for maybe not clicking with black players in the best way. Now, granted, this is a million years ago, but in December 1974, one of the SI features, he had this quote about his Warriors team, about how great their culture was. Quote, we like each other for what we are, not for the color of our skins. I was kidding Charlie Johnson the other day saying, don't tell me about you guys being put down. You had all the great detectives, don't you? There was Boston Blackie, Sam Spade, The Shadow. It's a great atmosphere. It's the first time I've been on a team where a black guy will call me to ask if I want to go eat. In Portland, a few weeks ago, we got in and we all just went out and ate. That used to be unheard of. I think it's super. It's clearly there's something weird going on because all of that is just bizarre. I can't even imagine somebody saying all that stuff in 2020. <laughs> I was kidding Charlie Johnson the other day. Uh, very odd. Um, that somehow wasn't his worst moment with this stuff, though, because he had this moment that um, I think I was the first one to write about it when I did my book and I stumbled across it because I saw it was a finals game. It was game five of the 1981 finals. And I didn't even know about this. Rick Barry is announcing with, with uh, Bill Russell and Gary Bender. And they decide to have some fun with Russell. They show a picture of the 1956 Olympic basketball team. Mm -hmm. And Rick Barry is all excited about it. And Gary Bender says, Rick, who do you think that guy is over there? And, and Barry says, I don't know. It looks like some fool over there with that 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 big watermelon grin over there on the left. And then they cut to Russell, and Russell's just like, "What the fuck did he just say?" And it just gets super awkward. Uh, and Bender said, "Who is that guy? That's you, Bill. Don't you recognize the picture?" And Russell is not smiling. And he's like, "Nope." And you would think they would cut away from it, but no, it keeps going. And Barry's like, "You sure you don't want these pictures?" And Bear, Russell literally turns his body away from Barry and Bender says, Rick, you might want to leave this one alone. And Russell finally says, no, I don't want them. 
And it was a thing back then. And it was a thing mm-hmm. that, uh, that basically Rick was not on CBS, I think, the next season because of it. I don't know. Look, I don't know Watermelon Gray, and I don't know where that comes from. I, I'd like to give people the benefit of that. It's such a weird thing to say, but it was truly awful. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think that helped with his post-retirement career. You would agree. But the, the odd thing about him, and it, it actually it goes to this thing about his lack of self-awareness. From the very beginning, even when he's at Miami in college, he starts taking all these courses in you know, radio and TV communications. He has this idea that he wants to be an announcer. And you said, you know, and he takes that year off and is an announcer early on in his career. I cannot think of someone who is less suited for being a successful announcer than Rick Barry, right? Yes, his knowledge of the game is extraordinary. And yes, he will make all kinds of insightful comments, but he's you, what you want from someone in that position is some degree of likability, right? right? You're going to spend hours with somebody. Think how many hours you spent with Tony Romo, like an insane amount of time. It only, and it works because you want to hang out with Tony Romo. Right. You don't, you don't want to hang out. But that idea that he somehow, given his own personality, would have perceived that that job was ideal for him, you know, as opposed to, you know, any number of other things uh, an, expo- well, here's an intelligent how badly- expert could do. Here's how badly he wanted to do it. He almost left the Warriors again in 1974 to be CBS's full-time announcer and was seriously like one foot out the door. And then with the Warriors were like, all right, fine. And they paid him whatever. I still don't think he was like one of the top five players, but he was moonlighting. The, the announcer choices were so bad. I did something in my book about this where they just tried all these dudes who were a disaster. Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor. Um, they just couldn't find anyone that worked. So Rick Barry, if he got knocked out of the playoffs, would then become the announcer. And he's the announcer for the 1976 finals for one of the great games ever, the triple overtime game, because he was moonlighting as the announcer. This is two weeks after he gets knocked out. Um, Anyway, him and Rick, him and uh, Russell were reunited in 85. TNT decided to pair them together as play-by-play announcer dudes. So I, I guess Russell got over it or forgave him or whatever. Uh, next category. This is a new one. This should have been a category sooner, but did he understand the secret? So you mentioned that Rick Barry quote about the team. This was the quote. There are a super group of guys on this team, players who put the team ahead of self. I think basketball is the epitome of team sport anyhow. And we've got players now who compliment one another for the sake of the team. Team success is what everyone here is after. I've never seen a guy down on himself after he had a bad performance as long as we won. In the past, he might have been more concerned about his poor shooting. And even if we'd happen to win the game, he wouldn't have been any happier. I would say he did understand the secret, Malcolm. Well, there's two things, though. There's um, understanding the secret in terms of your play on the court. So he's not a selfish. He's a brilliant passer, right? He's like a, his understanding of team play is extraordinary. And then there's understanding the secret off the court. That's the difficulty. Right. So um, maybe maybe he thought he understood that, but never really did. I think he's halfway there. Next category, too early, too late, just right. Did he arrive in time? Was it a little too early or was it too late? I would actually say he was probably just right. Because I, I, I think he's too early. I think I think him in the modern game is he's an even bigger superstar today. Can you can you imagine? I mean, Daryl Morey would construct his entire offense around him. 
He would be James Harden in. in Can I flip this around yeah. on you though? Yeah, Rick Barry's personality in the 2010s and 2020. I'm not sure it's flying. Although maybe I, you might be right. Actually, let me let me reconsider this. So if he comes in now, and you have to be so much more self aware, and you have your teams mm-hmm. around you helping you and monitoring and basically protecting you, maybe that actually would have. I think you're right. I think he was too early. You've, I think you've changed early. my opinion. Good call. He would have had a personal coach these days. He would have had a PR person. He would have someone doing his social media for him. The, you know, if Maury has him at, in Houston, Maury gives him a minder and like, and then Maury also would go and construct a team around him of people who could take, who could put up with him. Right. Right. Which, by the way, he kind of did with Harden. I don't think Harden's a walk in the park either. Right. He's not. No I mean, question. He's not on. He's not on Mary's Barry's level as a disagreeable type. But he, you know, and so what did what did Maury do? He went out and found guys who had thick skins. It's true. Um, so it's not. An, I don't think it's an impossible task today. One thing about Barry. Next category is nerd corner. And we did. I did the thing about how he shot 200 over 200 threes this year. There's one more nerd corner thing. So his usage rate. Never was over 28. Mm hmm. And that's one thing I love about these guys from this era, like Bird and Magic, you look at their usage rate, it's like 22 to 25 because they were so unselfish. They knew like they, everybody else needed to get a taste. So when you talk about, could he have been used like James Harden? I'm not sure Rick Barry would have, he, he wasn't totally that kind of player, right? Harden is like the usage rates, 38, 39%. That's usually what it is for any, even somebody like Luca, it's 37, 38 it would have been interesting to see if he could have adapted to that piece of it. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, oh shit, I just need the ball all the time. I don't, I don't know. They just didn't think that way back then. Uh, next category is, was he a one of one? I, I would say yes. Yes. Yeah. I would no, say that- he was an original prototype. Um, <laughs> next category, unintentional comedy wrinkle. So I did this in my book. Um, and I was fascinated by it. He, he had like either a wig or a weave during the entire 1975-76 season. And even when he gets in the fight with Sobers, you can see him like readjust, like readjusting it the same way yeah. somebody, we, you know, some Vegas lounge singer has a toupee. It's like whatever. But what's interesting is I got, I was at a Warriors game once and they had the media guide and had team photos of every year. And I'm going through and Rick Barry, it's like, you know, he's got thinning hair in the top and you go and then, and then there's this one year and he's got this full head of hair and then it goes back to the next year and it's gone. It's like Tom Brady. It's, (laughs) I saw no (laughs) no comment. (laughs) Tom's hair, which I hadn't seen in a while. I saw this weekend. We took his helmet off. I was like, holy mackerel. I'm sorry. Something's going on. I'm it's beyond (laughs) something's going on. He, he, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so he's the Tom Brady uh, of his era. Next category is defining playoff moment, which was obviously the 1975 playoffs. Yeah. Where they beat they beat a really tough Bulls team in seven, the series before the finals, which had Norm Van Leer, Jerry Sloan, Chet Walker, all these dudes to basically throw a barrier. They prevailed. And then they swept the Bullets. And a good he, Bullets. By the way, a good Bullets team. Really good Bullets team. Yeah. Elvin Hayes. Barry had 36 and 38 in games two and three, which were in Golden State. Why were they in Golden State? That's weird. Why were games two and three being Golden State? That leads us to half-assed internet research. The 1970, you'll love this. 
This is why you're here for really stupid mm. uh, trivia things like this. This is yeah. so in your real house. The 1975 finals had a 1-2-2-1-1 format for games. Why? Uh-huh. Well, uh, Washington was the, was the, uh, had the better record, so they were supposed to get the first two games. Unfortunately, the Ice Follies had first call in the Oakland Coliseum. Oh, my God. So the Warriors couldn't host game four in the in the Oakland Coliseum or the Cow Palace, which had a karate championship. So they gave the Bullets a choice. You can host, you can have Golden State host game one, and then you'll host the next three. Or um, you host the first one, Golden State gets the next two, and you host games four and five. Washington says, cool. We'll do one, two, two, one or one, two, 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 one Golden State wins the first one in Washington, comes back to Golden State. They win game two and three. Now they're up three zero in the series, but it's going back to Washington for four and five. They get swept all because of the ice follies and karate. Karate. God, that's a, a humbling reminder of where basketball was in the seventies. Next half fascinated research. So Barry thought him and uh, Warriors owner Franklin Muley had agreed in December of 77 to a two-year extension of his Warriors contract. The extension gave Barry an option to buy 5% of the franchise when he retired. Barry decided to not do that, did a pay raise, then they haggled over it, and then ended up leaving as a free agent to Houston. So Rick Barry could have owned 5% of the Warriors. And instead went to Houston for slightly more money. Not, I don't know if Rick Barry was like the shrewdest uh, businessman. Um, now was, that, this is well before the run-up in NBA. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he probably, they probably, that that share would have been offloaded sometime during the doldrums of the, of yeah. the late 70s, early 80s. Barry never got his jersey retired. Um. He said, I didn't expect, this is in the Kornheiser piece. I think it eventually got retired, but after a couple of years, he did not. Um, and he said to Kornheiser, I didn't expect anything. If I had had a grand tour, how would they have promoted it? Your last chance to boo Rick Barry. It's a so tough heartbreaking. One. It's heartbreaking. Uh-huh. Then I found this one in my research. This is a story Billy Paltz told a writer named Dave Hollander about Rick Barry. Quote, it was the 1980 season. Our head coach in Houston, Del Harris, was trying to heal some rifts between players. He brought in a psychologist who got the whole team together in the locker room for a visualization exercise. Uh, guy asked him to close their eyes, visualize all their troubles and problems, everyone. And then he said, now keeping your eyes closed, visualize picking up your all your troubles one by one and put them in a bag. Then visualize throwing that bag full of your troubles off a bridge. He talked in a very soft and relaxing voice. Now watch that bag of your troubles fly off the bridge, splash in the water below, sinking until it submerges, disappears. When I count to three, you will open your eyes. And when you do, all your troubles will be gone. At the time, I was reunited with Rick Barry and the Rockets. The psychologist counted to three. I opened the, my eyes and said, hey, Rick, I don't get it. How come you're still here? <laughs> Rick didn't appreciate that. <laughs> Billy Paltz. The Whopper. Uh, the Whopper. The Whopper. The Whopper. <laughs> you know why he was called the Whopper, right? No. It wasn't because of his size. It was, uh-huh. I think it was the locker room legend. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. Yes. Um, market corrector or market corrected? 
is our next category. I would say Larry Bird market corrected him in every single way as the high scoring, great passing uh, white guy who played forward. Wait, I'm not sure I understand what that, what that, what does that mean? Market corrector, market corrected? It basically means, so the example I always use is Tom Hanks and Michael Keaton are dead even, and then Tom Hanks just gets every good part and market corrects Michael Keaton. Oh, And if Tom Hanks didn't exist, it would have been way better for Michael Keaton. Yeah, yeah, okay. Biggest what if sliding doors moment. What if the Knicks chose Rick Barry over Bill Bradley in 1965? So they take Bill Bradley, took had just taken Prince in the Final Four, but was going to Oxford for a road scholarship for two years. The Knicks could have just had Rick Barry right away. He was like the scoring machine in college. And they're like, no, fuck it. We'll wait two years for, for uh, Bill Bradley. I don't know how it plays out. Either he would have been, Coin Eisner and I are going to talk about this in a second. What would have happened if he ended up on those Knicks teams? But um, there's a chance he goes down as one of the 15 best players ever, or it goes terrible and all of New York hates him. I feel like it's one extreme or the other, right? Yeah. So the question is, I mean, particularly back then, 70s tabloid media in New York is, you know, ferocious. Yeah. So he's going to get, you know, if he doesn't make make friends, big friends with the local press, he's going to get like just chewed up. Imagine he was already sensitive to fans booing him. Imagine if the home team fans turned on him, which, you know, these are Knicks fans. They'll turn on you in a heartbeat. Right. I don't know. That just sounds to me like a recipe for disaster. It's quite a what if. He also, he went to Houston when he signed as a free agent, played two more years there and then ended up leaving. And the year he left, they made the finals. So he actually could have been in the finals one more year if he had just stuck around. There's also, I I think there's some possibility he could have been on the 81 Celtics and they decided they didn't need him or something. But anyway, that's how his career and Post-retirement, next category, Barkley or Hondoed, meaning after he retired, did he keep his visibility and stature or did he fade away and nobody ever talked about him again? He's clearly hondoed. I, clearly I think hondoed. it to, almost to his detriment in a lot of ways. All right. Two more cat. Right, one more category overrated, underrated, properly rated. I, my verdict on him is severely underrated. Severely. I think you, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Probably, Probably. the most severely of anybody we're going to do this season on book of basketball. And then the last one, final pyramid ranking. Item 26 in my book, he's dropped to 31 now. He was one of the last two level three guys. Him, then John Stockton, then it jumped the level to level four. And it was really, you know, I think mostly because of that five-year ABA sojourn and, uh, you know, and some of the personality stuff. So uh, I think he had the talent to be a top 15 guy. Um no shame in being top 35 and finals MVP in 75 and a Hall of Famer, all that stuff. Did we hit everything? I think we did, yeah. I was going to say this, just a reminder of how um, we forget how unprofessional professional sports were in the 70s. Yeah. It's just like, a, I mean, you see the same thing when you look at baseball before Marvin Miller and Kurt Flood. It's not even, it doesn't even resemble a sport. It's like <laughs> this weird thing where you're owned by some white guy who probably hates you and like, yeah. you know, it's just like, in, and Rick Barry is making these bizarre choices and no one seems to stand up and, you know, there's no, there's no sports agents to speak of who could give you advice who have been down that road before. It's just a, it's just a completely unrecognizable universe. Yeah. And 
there's really not the machine to cover it the way there is now too. Back then you just had Sports yeah. Illustrated and local newspapers. You had no talk radio. And we and, we we forget about the agents. The agents thing is it goes to this whole thing about how you would have a support system today. A big part of that is the rise of sports agents because what sports agents really are doing when they come to prominence in the 80s is they are primarily handholders and advice givers, right? That's what they're they're there to smooth all those rough edges. When you when you show up in a you're a tennis player and you show up in Budapest for some tournament and you can't check into your hotel room, you no longer pitch a fit and get on the, you know, you call your agent and they fix it. So it's right. like that system's in place. And Rick, if Rick had a modern agent in his corner, his life looks so much different than it than it did in, in his time. Yeah, it's a great point. All right, Malcolm Gladwell, good to see you. Thanks for coming up. Thank you, Bill. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, my friend Tony Kornheiser is here. Once upon a time, his fingers used to work. He used to type stuff. And he wrote a pretty iconic piece about Rick Barry in 1983. He also covered Rick Barry. Talked about that piece in my intro at the top. As you look back, Tony, on Rick Barry almost 40 years later, what do you remember? Well, I remember... Um... First of all, I, I, let me tell all the people that you forced me to read this piece that I wrote. I did. Um, over, it's almost 40 years ago now. And of course, I didn't, I didn't remember any of it. I mean, I really didn't. That's what's so great about me is that I am not burdened by having any sort of memory. <laughs> so right. Everything just washes out. And reading it back again, you know, I, I, I thought about Rick. I covered Rick Barry when I was working at Newsday. Um, one of my jobs was to cover the Nets when he was on the Nets with Bill Melchioni and Trooper Washington and Billy Paltz and yep. John Roche, Brian Taylor, people like that, Ollie Taylor as well. And I, and I watched him play. I don't know. I watched him play a lot and particularly in playoff games. And I, I thought then, and I think now he's one of the greatest basketball players I've ever seen. His will to win was unsurpassed. I'm not saying other people didn't have the same will to win. I'm saying nobody had more will to win than Rick Barry. And I think that if you looked, and you would know this better than I, I think if you looked at his playoff record, you would see something extraordinary, where in most cases he exceeded in the playoffs what he did in the regular season. Um, Some of the teams that... Didn't he win? Did he win twice with Golden State, right? Twice? No, he won once with Golden State, um, made the finals with the Warriors twice, and almost won the title with the 72 Nets. Came very close. Okay, so so would it be fair to say that that he was not necessarily surrounded by great players? That a yeah. lot of it was him? Oh, 100%, 100%. I think the best player he yeah. probably ever played with was Nate Thurman. On the uh, yeah. on the original Warriors team, yeah. So I mean, he was Rick Barry was a was a furious basketball player 
who made himself a great shooter, was not a great shooter when he got into pro basketball, um, was always a great foul shooter, but did it underhanded. You can't shoot underhanded in the actual game. I don't even think that's legal. Is it? Is it legal to shoot underhanded in a regular game, not on the foul line? Is that legal? I think it is legal. Yeah. It would just be it's weird. It's crazy because it yeah. would be blocked. Right. It makes no sense. Anyway, so he made himself into a great shooter. He was a terrific driver to the basket. He could finish. He could stop and shoot. He was a very good assist man if he had skilled players around him. Um, and, and what was ultimately his undoing was his personality. He was bristly. He was, um, he was tough. I did in rereading the quotes, rereading the quotes in that piece. My God, it wasn't like I had to twist anybody's arm to say half the people in the league hate Rick Barry and the other half can't stand him. Right. <laughs> it was like, it was unanimity, right? It was unanimity. So. Yeah, he seemed like the tortured perfectionist. And that was why I wanted to, I think I was too hard on him in my book, which I talked about at the top. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, when I was working on my book and I read every book anybody ever wrote about the NBA, right? Like over 200 books. And he, the Barry stuff, I was just so fascinated by that you had this guy who was one of the best forwards of his entire generation, if not the best one until Bird showed up. And yet, was, you know, by the time he left, it was like everybody just wanted him out of the league. When you wrote that piece, it was 1983. And it seemed like a, it was almost like Michael Corleone at the end of Godfather 2, him coming to grips with the wreckage of this career he should have had versus how it played out, right? He was very, very forthcoming, very saddened by what had happened. Angered, of course, because Rick was fueled by anger, but saddened as well, saying, you know, I, I didn't want it to be this way. I didn't mean to be this strident. I didn't mean to be this abrasive. If you look deeper, you would have seen my heart. This is, is in essence what he said, but not everybody's going to look deeper. They've seen enough. Yeah. And by that point, he was off uh, doing color commentary, and he was great on TV. He was done. He was done, and he couldn't get a job, um, and there was nothing for him to do. And so it seemed like at that period of time, again, rereading the piece that he was leading a, a sort of a hedonistic life, you know, yep. just caring about himself and about the way he looked and whether he could get back again. I've seen him a few times since then. He is unfailingly nice to me. I will say this as a sports writer, there were many occasions when you would meet athletes, you know, for lunch or, you know, you'd be in a cafeteria circumstance or you'd be somewhere. And the only two athletes who ever picked up the tab when I was talking to him, the only two were OJ Simpson and Rick Barry. <laughs> the only two. Did anybody ever pick up the tab for you when you were chatting with him? No. Right? Never. They never do. Wow. No. That's quite a list. I wonder yep. what other what other lists just have OJ Simpson and Rick Barry on it. I think yep. that, that yep. might be it's a pretty yeah, that, that's it. That's the list. That's all there is in that particular uh, category for, you know, picking up the tab. I, there were a lot of teammates. Everybody respected Rick's game. They just didn't like Rick. And I don't know that they do now. You know, I don't think so. So you, you did a lot of NBA stuff back then. Were there any other players like that, that were as no. great and as polarizing as he was? was no, that, was that it? No, 
No, I think that's it. I, 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 because I had reread it, I thought about that last night, and the only person I can come up with in any sport is Barry Bonds. That's oh. it. Because even, the, even some of the players who were polarizing, such as a Pete Rose, was a polarizing figure. He was not disliked in the way that Rick Barry or Barry Bonds was disliked. And Barry Bonds, you know, whether you're ever going to put him in the Hall of Fame or not, he's one of the five greatest hitters in the history of baseball, right? You'd have to agree with that. Well, and he's the best offensive outfielder I think I've ever seen in person. Yeah, you know, so, and he was not, he was polarizing and not well-liked at all. Um, but probably not as disliked as Rick Barry. So probably not. Barry's peaking in the in the mid seventies, basically. After he has, he disappears. He's in the ABA. Nobody, there's no tape of the games. Basically, then he comes back, and the league is starting to transform a little bit, and the players are getting paid more. The league is really changing color, and a lot of you know, it, it's basically a mostly black league by the mid seventies, and it becomes a talking point in the media and some of the sports illustrated pieces are incredible about is the league too black. This is actual features that they're writing back then the games that they're show, you know, the, the playoff games, stuff like that. They start tape delaying them for five, six years. And it's basically like this league is in crisis. The fans basically don't want to come out to see a mostly black league yet. Here's Rick Barry. Who's one of the white stars that they have and nobody likes him either. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was around the sport a lot then, and I, I saw only full arenas. I mean, every place I went, the arena was full. Every place I went, people loved basketball and loved the, the individuality in basketball that you don't see in other sports. You don't see it in hockey because hockey is too fast. You don't see it in football because one person can't influence the game quite like that. And you don't see it in baseball where there are all these unwritten rules and codes of behavior. But I'm looking at a league with Rick Barry and Julius Irving and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, David you know, Thompson. Nate Archibald. I mean, you're, I mean, you're looking at guys who at different sizes are fabulous to watch and more creative in their sports than anybody else is in their sports. So, you know, that I, I understand that was written about then, and I always shook my head at it. I always said, what? What are you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Right. What are you talking yeah. about? Well, it's funny as a little kid, I love basketball the most for all the reasons you just mentioned. And, you know, in Boston, and we had a couple of bad years where it wasn't like sellouts, but when the team was good, it was always a sellout. And I was always stunned that people didn't, you know, especially when they started tape delaying the games and just not showing games, there's entire playoff games that there's no video of. And, uh, and as a little kid, I remember being really confused by that. Like, wait a second, what, what do you what do you mean basketball's in trouble? Reading these Sports Illustrated pieces and and just being confused. It did seem like, I you know I talked about. I'm going to talk about later when uh you're not going to be on the pod at this point. But there's a what if that I have coming up about how Barry almost got drafted by the Knicks. Right? They picked Bill Bradley over Rick Barry, and they decide to wait two years for Bill Bradley overtaking Rick Barry. And if Rick Barry just goes to the Knicks and you have this alternate universe where he's a Nick from 1965 on, and now he's with this team of beautifully, 
you know, beautiful passers and the motion basketball, we might be talking about him as like one of the 11 best basketball players ever. I, I agree with that. Um, that's the team of my youth. That's the team that I know better than any other team in any sport. Well, maybe the 69 Mets, but I really do know the Knicks well. And Bill Bradley was um, decisively important to that team. You know, I, I agree with you on Rick and what Rick would have done, but Bill Bradley was so important to that team. Those five guys out there at any given point could shoot from anywhere. Bill Bradley was a better shooter by far than Rick Barry coming into the league at that point in time. And when you had Barnett and Reed and DeBusher and Frazier and Bradley, there's five guys who can kill you from anywhere on the court. I don't know that there's ever been a team like that. And they were selfless. And yeah. I don't know that if Rick was there, that would have been the same selfless team. I'm not. And, and I think you have to be aware of how great Bill Bradley was in college. Took Princeton to the final four. Princeton right. to the final four. And so I think he was considered at that point. In hindsight, Rick Barry's a far greater player. He's one of the greatest players of all time, as far as I'm concerned. But at that point in time, you can justify getting Bill Bradley because you also have Cassie Russell playing the same position, right? I mean, you're a little too young for that one, I think. Right. It, w it would have been, I, I think the ceiling is higher, but I think you're right. The mystique of that team might have changed a little bit. Because yeah. Barry, it's hard to be selfless when you have somebody who can put up 40 in any game. Well, you, you got to feed that person. I mean, yeah. it, it's, you know, I never get angry when Harden and Westbrook score a billion points. I don't know that that's a way you can win a championship necessarily, but if this guy's talent is to score, well, they have a 24 second clock, which means you got to shoot. And if you don't score, you're not going to win. So put it in the hands of somebody that can score. Isn't that the most elemental principle of, of basketball? Yeah, I think it is. So you would have, yeah. so bird comes next. And would you say Bird was a 2.0 version of Barry? Like he's taller, but basically all the same ways Barry could affect the game. Bird's doing it on steroids, basically. Well, I mean, I would say this, and I'm, I'm informed by, I'm reading this book called Gods at Play by Tom Callahan, which is a memoir of all of his years in being a sports writer. And he talks about Bird and Gretzky in a, you know, in a way that, that he likens them together very much. And, and what he says about Larry Bird, and I don't know that this is true about Rick Barry, maybe it is true, but Larry Bird out there was a genius in terms of anticipating where to be and what would come next and how to find someone before even that person knew that he was going to be open. And I think when Rick Barry had the ball in his hands, he had the ball in his hands to score, not exclusively, but surely most of the time. I'm not sure that was true with Larry Bird. I'm not sure they're the same player. Mm. I mean, I think what ties them in, obviously, is skin color and position, but I'm not sure they're the same player. Are you? Well, I think I think the the common link with them is the passing. And Barry, yeah. even though he didn't yeah. start his career as an awesome passer, I think by the time you get to those, oh, great those Warriors teams, yeah, I mean, he was him. It's him, LeBron, and Bird. Not in that order. I would have a Bird, Barry, LeBron, but as like the three forwards who just play to play could make any pass on a basketball court. Yeah, but and I think, really I think Rick's three. mentality first was if I can get open, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. So, um, before you go, any 
Any thoughts on Rick wearing um, a weave during the entire 1976 season? I think, you know, you told me this the other day. Yeah. You told me this rankled you beyond words. It didn't rankle me. I I, I was fascinated by it. I just can't imagine if somebody did this now in 2020, what the reaction would be. So, So what I wanted to ask you was what is exactly the moral superiority of having no hair. Because I have no hair. If you tell me that I'm morally superior, I'm going to feel pretty good. But if you tell me, oh, Tony, you can't go on TV. You can't. I think you made it clear that getting a hair transplant was okay, but having a hair weave was not okay. The, the minutia of that fascinated me and kept me up at night. And it well, does speak to moral superiority. Do you want to defend that position? Well, what happens if the wig came off during the game? Like I would, well, I would just be terrified of that the entire time if I was playing basketball. That there would be some sort of hair accident. Well, that's what ha- didn't that happen with Howard Cosell? Didn't didn't Ali rip his toupee yeah, off I think at one did. point? <laughs> yeah, that would have been. But it didn't happen with Rick Barry. And you would think that the way he was treated, somebody would have tried to do it. Maybe it was a really good hairpiece. All right, greatest, before we go, greatest forwards you've ever seen. I assume you have LeBron number one and Bird number two. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't sort of rank them in order. I mean, because they're all, you know, they're all in the same, the picture on the wall, they're all in the picture and it doesn't matter who's in the end and who's in the middle. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I go back a long way for people who played that position Gus Johnson, Dave DeBusher, Chet right. Walker, you know, early on, I, I assume that you rate Duncan as a forward and not a center. And Duncan was spectacular. McHale was spectacular in what they did, given their size. But Havlicek and Bird and Barry and LeBron stand a little taller. Am I leaving somebody out? Yeah, I was, the only other one is Durant. Oh, yeah, I don't think of Durant because he's not done. Yep. You know, I know LeBron's not done, but LeBron's level of accomplishment, he's like looking backwards most of the time. Durant, honestly, Bill, Durant, when it's all said and done, and I don't know about championships or anything like that, Durant may be the most unstoppable forward of all time. Like, how do you stop him? How do you prevent him from doing what he wants to do? It seems impossible to me. Yeah, I would say Durant is probably the easiest two points at the forward position. So you'd think like yeah. Kareem, Kareem was the easiest two points at center. Right. And then Durant at forward and Jordan at guard, if you think yeah. of it that way. Um, well, I, I think, do, but I also, again, it's, it's how old a person is and what they have seen. I'm old enough to have seen the entirety of the NBA. So for me, when everybody talks about Jordan, I just, I just raise my hand meekly and I go, I'm going to give you magic and I'm going to give you Oscar. And I'm going to tell you they controlled the game every yep. bit the way Jordan controlled the game. That Oscar Robertson was a five-tool player before anybody was a five-tool player, right? He could shoot, he could pass, he could defend, he could rebound, he could handle. What what else is? Uh, did I miss something in being a guard? Right. Well, and that's that's the case for why Rick Barry was so underrated because what he does in the 1975s. Everything. The 1975 season, from start to finish, he does something that only a handful guys have ever done. And he, and and if he you go under, back, he underwent stuff that other players did not. I mean, he was barred from playing for a year. He was jumping yeah. around. He was persona non grata. He was, you know, larger than life and not in a good way most of the time. 
Yeah. He was, you know, he was the guy you threw darts at. Could have right. been fun. All right. Uncle Tony, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Bye.